1: When we think of NOAA, a multitude of things can come to mind from our planet's oceans and atmosphere. The research in these fields has yielded us scientific advancements in weather forecasting, oceanography, and atmospheric chemistry, just to name a few. But what is the process for conducting this research and allocating the resources across such a broad spectrum? Today's guest helps to do just that. He is the Acting Chief Scientist and Assistant Administrator for Oceanic and Atmospheric Research at NOAA. Please welcome... Craig McLean.
0: It's my pleasure, Marshall. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: this is one that I'm just going to go ahead and start off. We have slipped on this one because I, I was talking to Craig before we came out, and I can't believe we have not had him on Weather Geeks before now, but he, he's had, had had a busy role. As you heard in the intro, he's uh, serving in two roles within NOAA. But before we even go there with any of that, I have to ask Craig this question, and I, I, I'm interested in his answer because I Are you a weather geek? And if so, how did you become one? Or uh, I know you have backgrounds in law and some other things. So just tell us about your foray into this world of weather.
0: Well, Marshall, I am a weather geek, and I'm a weather geek by both interest and necessity. I started my career as a mariner, and no one goes to sea without, number one, trying to know the weather, but number two, deeply appreciating the meteorology community who gives us competent forecasts on the weather. And as I started out in my career in the NOAA Corps, the Commission Corps of NOAA, it's a uniform service, used to be part of the United States Navy, but we're our own independent service. So as a young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed ensign, you're just soaking up information everywhere you go and learning every step. And I began to focus a bit more on the weather because I realized that understanding the nature of our work, how weather impacted our work, and It was a safety issue. It was a a safety of the mariners at sea. And being a deck officer, I had some degree of responsibility. But as I got more advanced in my career, I really came to understand weather's impact um, and the interplay between weather and climate. And as I got into the position of being a captain of NOAA ships, which I, I had great pride in, It was remarkable to get the service and the attention of our weather service colleagues because we had a brother or sister, NOAA ship out in the middle of of a weather system. And um, I I have some very fond recollections and usually tried to make the visit to every forecast office, wherever I was geographically, to to thank the forecasters because they kept us safe every day. And it's been a joy for me getting to know more about weather. And then once I got to this position where I was responsible for weather research, climate research, ocean research. I I had to learn more. And I think the lesson I learned there was, once again, just like when I was an ensign on the deck of the ship, brand new, listen to the experts. They'll tell you, they'll guide you. And that's generally how we make decisions. We have a fleet of experts inside of the agency and outside. But weather fascinates me. And um, it's even in my recreational time on boats, it's something that's absolutely vital.
1: You know, listening to your answer, I remember my colleague, Joanne Simpson, former colleague at NASA back in the day, saying any person that goes out on the water or flies a plane needs to know a lot about the weather. And so that really resonates with what you said. Let me just back up and give you a little bit of who Craig McLean is. He currently serves as the acting chief scientist for NOAA. Uh, and also, as I mentioned, the Assistant Administrator for Oceanic and Atmospheric Research at NOAA, something within the field of meteorology and in the, in the weather and climate enterprise, water, weather, water and climate enterprise we know as OAR. Um, he has previously served as NOAA, uh, acting deputy as assistant administrator. He's the founding director of OAR's Office of Ocean Exploration, Exploration and Research. As you heard him mention, he served in a uniform for nearly 25 years in NOAA's commissioned corps, Uh, at the rank of captain. Uh, He is an attorney by training. And I learned that, I think, somewhere along the way in New Orleans when I was hanging out with him and a colleague, Danae Carlos, shout out to Danae, Um, and he has practiced marine resource law for NOAA. And he's the he's a fellow of the Explorers Club and the Marine Technology Society and the past president and chairman of the Sea Space Symposium. So uh, really diverse background uh, I, I, that I, some of that I didn't really know about you. So I just want to pick your brain for the next 30 minutes on a variety of topics. Um, First of all, just a question that I know you'll, it's probably a tee-up question, but I think our listeners need to know this. How much research g- gets done at NOAA, and what is the greatest focus?
0: NOAA really is a science agency, and research is a very important part of that science. And we're, if you consider the satellite work that we do, which is dollar-wise measurable as probably the most expensive undertaking that we have in any single place, we're better than 50% research and we're the other 50% provision of services to the public and that ranges from the daily weather forecast the seasonal forecasts and and those components of the meteorology community that we're most familiar with particularly for weather geeks who are following on on this show but then also we provide a lot of the science that defines the state of climate. In fact, I think it's a fair component to say multiple agencies of the federal government and many academics contribute to our understanding of what climate is. But NOAA was founded 50 years ago on a policy document that's described as the Stratton Commission report, named after the chair of of that appointed, uh, congressionally appointed and presidentially aligned commission that gave rise to NOAA. And of course, NOAA contains the Fishery Service and its predecessor, uh, Bureau of Commercial Fish, Weather Service, predecessor being the Weather Bureau. The Coast Survey, which today is the National Ocean Service, but then came the Satellite Service, NESDIS, National Earth Satellite Data and Information Service, but then OAR, Oceans and Atmospheric Research. And a simple paragraph or two in that Stratton Commission report challenged this new agency, NOAA, to study the interaction of air and ocean. And that's what OAR has been doing. In order to do that, we've established observatories for atmospheric greenhouse gas following Dr. Keeling and his first installation on top of Mauna Loa. And we've taken that up and then gone to the Antarctic, to the Arctic, to the middle of the Pacific and Pongo Pongo, American Samoa. There are many places around the world that we also collect gases. So We start that observing system and an oceanic observing system, which um, actually began in the very earliest times of NOAA with literally, and Marshall, I'll just show you this because we can be seeing each other visually. It's a bottle with a message in it. I and these shout were, out
1: to Sting and the police.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. The, this little <laughs> bottle has, has a form in it. It's a United States government form, and it says, please let us know where this was found on what date. And that was one of the earliest circulation experiments that, that was conducted. But then fast forward to the Argo floats, buoys, drifters, gliders, the tools that we now have to inform weather forecasts, but also help answer that question. What is that air-sea interaction? After 50 years of looking at that air-sea interaction, we now know it as climate science. So NOAA has been really at the at the I would say core of defining climate science, but then taking that science and delivering it to communities with programs like Sea Grant, programs like the RISA, the Regional Integrated Science Assessment Program, where we get into communities and explain climate science. So I think to, to get back to your question, how much research inside of NOAA? We're, we're about we're 100% science agency. We're about half research in each of the line organizations. But the other half is providing that information in a service to the communities.
1: And, you know, this is a question candidly that even I have, and I've I've been someone that has served on NOAA's uh, climate working group and on its uh, science advisory board. But a a question that one of my producers wanted to know uh, is now with, with that context for the agency and its mission, and particularly OAR, who sets the research priorities for NOAA today? I mean, how does that come about?
0: Multiple levels define our priorities. Certainly, the Congress provides us with instruction through congressional authorizations and then also the description of the appropriation. And for some of the listeners who may not be quite so familiar, the authorization is the law that tells us in broad principles what to do. And the appropriation offers then the dollars to get that job done. So they're two different acts of Congress. Authorizations usually last a long time. Appropriations are annual. And when we receive that money, we're often given direction by Congress to focus on, for example, in the weather community, subseasonal to seasonal. Are we closing that gap fast enough? We get a boost from Congress, a little push from Congress. Why don't you work on that a little bit harder? And here's some money in order to do that. So those priorities come down, but that's at a broad level. Now then the question becomes, what do you do? for subseasonal to seasonal. How do you approach that? So we're informed by, for example, Marshall, and I commend you for your service in NOAA Science Advisory Board, that we, we listen to outside advice and we also have internal experts, but we also have the service delivery component, which is the National Weather Service. So we'll work very closely as a research enterprise in NOAA with the client, if you will, who is, and I I avoid the use of the word customer because I, I just think it's a little bit more reflective of the sophistication of our relationship, that the client who we provide these services to is the National Weather Service forecast community. What do you folks need? And never will you be able to ask a question to the forecast community where they don't have a good idea already of what needs to come next and how to do it. So we wind up then intersecting with the outside community, the inside community, when I say inside, internal to NOAA, and we deliberate on what the next project ideas are that we need to be undertaking. And in recent times, probably over the past five or so years, five to eight years, we've really concentrated more on the development of a science idea and the intended recipient of that science product. And our lexicon for that is the transition of research to operations, to the operational use. And generally, if we come up with a good idea and we can't really see who the intended user of it is, that is probably not going to have as successful a life in science as understanding who the user is, who's going to need it. And by the way, that user very early on starts getting involved in the development of the product so that that ultimate transition to use and application, in this case within the weather service, is smooth and easy. Now, that's taken a while for us to perfect because we definitely have two different cultures, right? I, I was an operator. I was a ship driver. And when the chap pulled up with a new radar on the back of that flatbed, ready to load it onto my ship, I said, wait a minute, give it to the other guy. I don't have time to learn that new radar right. this weekend in port. We're leaving Monday. So, right, I understand the distinction between the, the research community and the operational community and the comfortable reliance on the on the tools that we have already today. But when something new is asked for, we're able to deliver it and bring it in sufficiently. But those priorities are, are informed also by the politics. Marshall, you can quickly look back over four years, um, over the past four years, and realize that climate at the executive branch was being suppressed, whereas the Congress was voting full budgets for NOAA in order to do our climate work. So once again, I guess that spirit of democracy and the value of our, our governmental system gives us the long-standing opportunity to continue to perform for the, for the needs of the public.
1: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills there's a big learning curve with welding virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact and we are back on the weather geeks podcast i'm dr marshall shepherd from the university of georgia and i'm speaking with craig mclean who is the acting chief scientist of NOAA and is the deputy director i'm sorry the um Assistant Administrator of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research at NOAA. We affectionately know him as the head of OAR within the Weather uh, Climate Water Enterprise. And, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I was just thinking about your answer there, because I literally just last week as we're taping this just served on a review, external review committee for the National Severe Storms Lab, in SSL. And for those of you that are listening, uh, the nation's Doppler radars and now our dual polarimetric radars uh, are in thanks to NSSL and, and NOAA and this, this line office and uh, the next great radar advancement in the weather world, we think will be phased array radar. And we, we learned a lot about phased array radar during that review. So thank all of those colleagues for that, that, that information. Um, but as I think about where you're headed, and, and you're not headed anywhere, because I guess one thing that was recently announced, perhaps that the, the Weather Geeks listeners may not know is you're, you've announced your retirement at least from Noah, knowing you have a feeling you won't completely disappear from our world. But um, first of all, I just wanna thank you for your service to the nation. Uh, You mentioned uh, the last four years and the challenges and struggles with the climate. Um, Let's be candid. There were some challenges and struggle with weather and you stood your ground on the well-known Sharpie Gate when there were concerns about the integrity of forecasts from our national hurricane center and from the national weather service. So, uh, you know, I don't have this question on my production notes, but I just want to get your thoughts. Why, do you, why did you feel that it was so important? And we don't have to go into all the details. I think people know about Sharpiegate if you don't Google it. But why did you feel it was so important to stand up for the integrity of the forecasters and for the science?
0: Well, Marshall, first of all, thank you for your compliments. And and I, I do plan to retire after 40 years of service. But um, looking back and uh, well, also thank you for serving on the review panel for NSSL, the Severe Storms Lab. It's very important work and it's very important to have reviewers like you giving us your advice. Once again, how do we set priorities? We, we listen to the community as well as what we generate internally. But Back to that, that circumstance of Hurricane Dorian, it, it was very frustrating to me to see that for political reasons, a political machinery was going to allegedly correct the forecast of the National Marine of the National Weather Service. Excuse me. And in noting the, the, the passion, the loyalty of the individuals where weather service forecasters at times will put their personal cell phone in the announcement to the public, if you don't believe this storm is that impactful, call me. It, it, I tear up when I think of that, noting the loyalty of these individuals and their passion to keep the public safe in pursuit of their mission. And, and, and I also believe, right, when one signs one's own work That's the highest level of professionalism. Every scientist does in the authorship of a paper. Every forecaster does in the issuance of a forecast. You're putting your personal integrity on the line. And and when I saw that this great transgression of a political machine trying to correct what was not needing to be corrected, it was an entirely accurate forecast. It was an entirely accurate correction of what the president had wrongfully stated. And I saw what were conciliatory statements in circulation throughout our web channel, and no one was really calling it the way it really was. And I felt compelled to tell our scientists and our weather forecasters that uh, we see it. We see this for what it is. And it was a political intervention. It was not truthful science. And the danger of that is that it can debase the public's reliance on what we produce for them. And the public needs to trust what we put out, whether it's our science or whether it's our science-informed and expertly guided weather forecast coming from our forecasters. So I, I just felt compelled to write what nobody else was saying at the yeah. time. And, and, and out, out it went. And um, I, I obviously it obviously went farther than my original intention was, but you at that point in time, I didn't really care how far it went because I was so angered over the, the uh, disassembly of the credibility we have worked so hard to build. And um, so so out it goes, and and frankly, I received a couple of calls from people who wanted me to go on camera and talk about it, and I just felt, story's not about me, story's about what happened. And if I've shown light on what's happened, I I am satisfied. And if I can, with a moment's digression, I go back to the root and the the strength of the scientific integrity policy that NOAA has. And our current administrator, Rick Spinrad, who I would recommend to your show in the future. Yeah, we, we're, we're
1: going to be talking to Rick in, in the next week or so.
0: Excellent. Excellent. I'm sure it'll be a thrilling engagement because he's just a wonderful, wonderful leader and a talented guy. Rick was the engine and the maker of our scientific integrity policy. And um, I remember reviewing it when I was Rick's deputy over in, in previous assignments because Rick had the job I'm in now and I was his deputy. And there was one little line that I put in there that I, I felt was my only contribution. And I came to use it again when we were challenged here, that there can be no higher loyalty to anything but the science. It can't be to a person, a philosophy or any any political machinery. It's got to be to the science. And uh, that's really where we found ourselves. So I, I was grateful to stand up. I thanked everybody for calling me and asking me to be further interviewed. And I just left it where it was. And, and our scientific integrity policy flowed came to findings the process was exercised and i think we are back in that position we deserve which is the trust of the public
1: yeah and it's it's so critical particularly with noah's mission because um, you know, you're at least on the you know the weather side you're you're putting out information that literally could uh, save someone's life or property and so uh there that integrity and trust that the public must have in those that information was critical so you know i i really applauded what you did there and i know it took some guts too, particularly in that environment that you were in at the time so we really appreciate Thank that you. on behalf of the weather climate enterprise and just putting on my hat for a second as a former president of the ams i mean i just i i, I really appreciated the boldness want to get back to your to noah and your your roles there i mean you're headed out the door you're retiring but what do you see craig as sort of the most significant challenges in the next five to ten years for noah research or research in general
0: I think one of the challenges for us will be certainly not financial. Let me let me just make the mark now that it seems that the the word of what NOAA needs and what NOAA does has has richly been understood in the Congress. And I start looking at budgets and what financial health we're in compared to where we've been. I'm very optimistic that the funds are are being made available to this agency to do what we fully need to do, close some of those gaps, like high performance computing availability to us, and and other facets, including. Hiring more scientists in certain areas, getting into more early readiness research or the, the early stages of research. And um, some of the other challenges that are in front of us, though, will be how we deliver an increased level of precision and fidelity to the public, and how the public understands those increased forecast times or it lead times to, to certain phenomena. So, really, what I'm getting to is incorporating social science actively into the physical science. I think for Marshall, we can go back to discussions we had when you were on the science advisory board. So where are we with social science? And social science continues to come up as an add on subject, which it does not deserve to be. It needs to be core. It needs to be in the heart of what it is that we do so that as a product or a new development is, is made, we know how to convey and communicate to the public effectively to meet the public's needs and also how to give the public an understanding of what these new tools are. So social science is I think an opportunity for us to improve. I think autonomy is going to be another area that is going to be seen as remarkable uh, as we sit here today and it's going to be the norm in a short amount of time. So it's the involvement of artificial intelligence and and machine learning, buzzwords that have been around since the 80s, the intelligence community started working in those domains back in the 80s. But as we really start to see the effective application of those technologies to looking at cloud patterns and other components, precipitation uh, measures that come back on radar, starting to apply AI to that and enhancing our models with AI, I think is going to be another advancement for us that probably makes our burden a little bit easier if properly designed. But then take automation to another step where we have in the ocean, and I think you, you're familiar with my phrase, Louis Uccellini, my good friend at Weather Service Director, often cites me for this of, if you like your seven-day weather forecast, thank an oceanographer. And when we start to <laughs> yes. look at, at the tools we have deployed in the ocean, that autonomy is increasing. And so is the coverage that we're able to make in the ocean to bring more, more data back to inform models that both for Near-term weather, seasonal weather, and long-term are going to be suitable for us. But now let me leave you in, on this note with this thought. When we have fully automated and uncrewed steamships plying the, the oceans, bringing cargo and trade to the country, which is where the maritime industry is headed, uncrewed ships, you're going to need better weather. And that, that sense of presence of the, of the officer on deck won't be there. It'll be remote-connected. And how that's all going to play out, I don't know. But what I do know is we're going to need more accurate forecasts and, and a greater sense of presence on that remote location. So the automation is going to have to be the bridge to get us there. Last one, climate, I think, is um, continuing to inform people about what that future reality by geography will be for climate. And our climate.gov site, for example, which I encourage folks to take a look at, the Climate Resilience Toolkit, some of these other tools that we've made available can allow the citizen to self-explore what their location's climate future might be. Not every real estate board is happy about that, right? When you start looking at what, what might be the the new description of the neighborhood, flooded X percent of the time, that's, that's a reality that may be coming in our coastal environments. But- those are the tools that I'm thinking of.
1: Yeah, and I want to you know shout out to Noah because I think this sort of, I guess you re-debuted, I mean, it's always been out there, but the sort of new improved climate.gov website is amazing. Um, Weather Geeks listeners, if you've not had a chance to explore it, go do so. It's, it's quite good. It's always a resource that I've recommended for people, but it's really amazing to see what, what what Noah has done with this uh, resource and the resiliency uh, toolkit and so forth. These are tools your tax dollars have paid for. So go go use them and go use them to find out some things, but also because we have the antidote to some of the misinformation that you may, may hear about climate. And I think that's declining somewhat uh, over, over time. And that, that's a good thing. You know, reflecting back on your, Career, Craig, uh, at OAR, and as chief scientist, what what are some of the things that for you stand out? As just you you look back on your career and said, yep, yeah, we did that under my watch." I mean, what are what are some things that NOAA has stood up in OAR or under your watch at least uh, that that you're particularly proud of?
0: There are a couple of recent ones, Marshall, and I appreciate the the opportunity to just share these with, with you and your listeners. Obviously, the Dorian issue was, was a moment that was very compelling f- for me and others, of course. But being able to start the ocean exploration program, if I look at the Dorian experience as maybe a middle linebacker's position, going back to my high school football days, which yes. were not all that successful, but um, it, it, being a quarterback w- was um, – was the ocean exploration opportunity, and in in starting something with the support of Congress and being able to to grow it from what started as just a four million dollar program, into today it's hovering closer to fifty million dollars, and we were able to grow it. The importance of the program I think could be recognized, much as space exploration is an engine and an inspiration for for the intellect of of young kids, STEM, and and really just knowing how to manage the ocean if we really have a good. Map and guide of what's in there. It's very important. That was both fun but also a real education in, in taking a four million dollar program and blossoming it into something much larger. The um, the UN decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable development, I've been very involved in that. I started as a group with a group of just five other people as part of the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, a very small subset, and we basically provided the architecture for how this can grow out. And very, very talented people who joined on, and eventually we got to a twenty person advisory board, which um, I'm just now going to step down from as well in my retirement. But I feel proud that we were able to launch this decade, put a put a notional billboard on the side of the highway of of knowledge and basically say, "Hey, folks, the oceans are important, and these are the things we need to focus on. And it relates to weather, to climate, to ocean health, feeding the public, pollution, clean water, clean air, it reaches many, many different directions. And and the last one I'll mention goes back to the late 90s, Marshall, and I don't know if you recall, but there there was a period of time when there was actually a proposal that was rendered by the inspector general of the Commerce Department to stop the weather service modernization, to transfer seafood inspection to another agency, to eliminate the NOAA core and to privatize the NOAA fleet. And I handled with several other talented individuals, including an excellent leader, now retired, but Rear Admiral Bill Stubblefield. But we undertook this challenge of having to listen to the administration, draft legislation that would eliminate the fleet and the Corps, but then look at the realities of what underpinned it. And there really was no policy or, or financial benefit to the country by doing it. In fact, I would assert if we didn't have a NOAA Corps, we should invent one. So it, it is a very flexible management and leadership tool inside of NOAA, but my role in helping to defend the NOAA Corps was somewhat analogous to my writings on on the Dorian situation, and I had a, a brief degree of flamboyance there where I had written an article that was published in the Naval Institute Proceedings and uh, drew the ire of then the political leadership of the NOAA team at that time, so um, I don't care the political party. If it's a bad idea, I'm committed to jump on it.
1: We are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. From the University of Georgia, which houses a C-Grant program, by the way. Uh, we're talking with Craig McLean. Uh, of Noah and his his days of Noah have been uh, impactful, eventful, and provocative and provocative in a good way because he is a defender of science. You know, I I have this award that I won from the Turner uh, Captain Planet Foundation called the Protector of the Earth Award. (laughs) I even have a cape, but I, I think you're a protector of science integrity. And I again, that's just something I mean, your legacy is at Noah's. Uh, in, in many areas, but I, I I think that's going to be a big one. And I think you, you'll people will write about you and talk about that for some time to come, not just on the Dorian issue, but what you just mentioned as well. So, you know, and I asked Louie this question when he was on weather geeks a few months back, what would you tell your successor? If you would sit down and have coffee with him or her, uh, what, what, what would you tell them?
0: I think the most important thing is, is to trust your people. And to recognize that no single leader has the ability to think better than the collective pool of expertise and knowledge and intellect, and so that's one. Trust the people. There are just amazing people who come to the NOAA mission, and not all of them are paid by U.S. government check. Many of them are paid by universities, and the relationship that we have with our cooperative institutes and our Sea Grant colleagues—that's all part of of Team NOAA and the NOAA pooled intellect. And we get much worth in the way of listening to what these diverse folks have to say. I, I would also then say that we need to be talking internal to the agency. I think one of the things that Dr. Uccellini, Louis, our good friend, what he and I have been able to accomplish is to be bridging much closer the relationship between the weather research community and the weather forecast community and the operational weather community. And the relationship between our two parts of NOAA had not always been that way. And Louie and I were, were really able, I think that's something else I would hope to be remembered to contribute to, is that we built that bridge. We built a much better bridge than we had seen before. And some of our colleagues, Marshall, going back to some of our AMS colleagues, American Meteorological Society colleagues, have remarked that the relationship between these two components of NOAA have have not been better before. And that really gives me a lot of pride, realizing that my 50% and Louis's 50%, it starts at the leadership level, and, and it then flows through the organization. But in terms of uh, further advice, establish a very good relationship of candor with the Congress. And for years, we've been taught to go up to Congress, and by law, we have to stay within the domain of the president's budget. The president asks for a certain amount, and we have to support with logic the explanation why that amount is sufficient, But when I watch other agencies and other bureaus go up to the Congress and explain to them, yes, this is the dollars that are in our budget, and there are many competing demands and requirements for these dollars, this is the best we could do right now for this subject. We have long-term been often barred from talking about any higher number. And and how can appropriators, the people in Congress who have to plan out your budgets, how can they know what's coming if we don't tell them? So what we've started, what what I've started to do, and not without some uh, constructive guidance from other parts of uh, beyond NOAA, but is to describe what what is the total? What's that one hundred percent requirement that we need? For example, what's the total we're going to need for phased array radar once it's developed? What is the total that we're going to need for an ocean observing system that we can only afford one fifteenth of in this year's budget? That sort of thing. So. Establish that candor. Be trusted to know that what you're offering is is what people need to hear and know, whether they be members of Congress or whether they be members of the constituency and, and the community at large. So this is a marvelous agency. I often say that um, our people would crawl atop broken glass on hot burning coals just to come to work in the morning. And that's everyone, that's the fishery service, the weather service, OAR, satellites. Uh, all the way around. And and I do believe that because, Marshall, as you see in your university community, there's a passion for this work. And we just happen to be one of the places that people can be employed to perform this work. But I'm very proud of NOAA, very proud of the agency's character, delighted that we've got such a superlative leader as Rick Spinrad coming back again to NOAA. NOAA is in good shape. And whoever comes into my job, I feel comfortable leaving now because the budget is is great. The people are great. And we're set up with huge opportunities where climate is front and center. We are the authoritative voice to be describing as a government agency what the state of the climate is. And um, it's a golden job. I hope someone really, really better than me is going to come on in here and take this up. Thank you.
1: That's a critical job. And so I hope uh, hope that uh, whoever's uh, maybe a listening to that out there, uh, that's really good advice. So the inevitable question is coming as we draw to a close here. What's next for you?
0: I promised my wife and my grandkids that retirement would come. I've pushed it a little bit to help Rick Spinrad and his team get comfortably established. But I'm going to take about six months, best advice I got from some friends who have preceded me in this activity, and and just determine what is right. And if I wanted to um, keep slugging away, I, I would stay where I am because this is just a wonderful job with wonderful people. But I'm going to take some time to figure that out. But I, I want to get back to being able to do the things that I was not able to do time-wise. Time with the grandkids, they're a great motivator for me and the things I've been doing recently that we need to make sure that their world is not a Mad Max Movie set, right? That their world is something that we can be proud of. The contributions we made during our time and our effort, and I don't want them to look back and say, "My God, why didn't the old man try harder?" He was in a position to be able to influence some of this. But um, spend time with family, little travel, diving. I'm a still an active diver. Some boating, and um, I'll not be far from the ocean community. I, certainly, my background's more oceans. It includes weather, of course, with great pride. But I. I'll find something that's giving me maybe a part time level of engagement and um, never far from the community, though.
1: Yeah, I, I, I firmly believe that, too, but certainly also resonate with uh, what you say about your grandkids, because very much my my kids motivate in a lot of my decisions these days. And so I really appreciate that that candor. Uh, we've got to end it there. But before we do, it's time for the geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist or oceanographer, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Brian Booth. Brian is a fire captain with the City of Philadelphia Fire Department. Brian is constantly monitoring the weather to help with the urban search and rescue team, and is known for being able to spit out random weather facts at the firehouse during lunch. I love love that, Brian. You definitely are weather geeks, and thanks for listening, by the way keep that passion burning strong. Now, if you know someone that should be a deserving candidate for our Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Craig, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast and for such a storied and important and impactful career.
0: Thank you, Marshall, very much.
1: I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and thank you all for listening to Weather Geeks. I've got some really awesome shows coming up, and we'll see you in the new year as well. Take care.